Now, those of you who were here last week know that we covered almost one verse. I didn't calculate it, but if we continue at that rate, many of us may not be here to finish this. But I promise that we will pick up the pace a little bit. Uh, Last week, most of the time was spent on introduction, historical introduction, and uh, that's important. And I'm sorry if you missed that, because that really, that really places the setting, the historical setting for this relationship between the Philippians and Paul, which was an excellent relationship. We saw that on at least four occasions about which we know that the Philippians, even sometimes out of their deep poverty, they were uh, anxious to contribute to Paul's ministry and also to the relief of the poor in uh, Judea. Uh, We looked at the first verse after seeing that on Paul's second missionary journey, Paul's third missionary journey, he passed through there. Uh, His fourth journey was to Rome where he was imprisoned. We saw that the Philippians heard about his imprisonment, sent money, and sent their personal emissary, Epaphroditus, who got sick on the way, was able to finish his journey, but then Paul sent him back, and they were probably disappointed not to see Timothy because they had requested Timothy. So Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians with several purposes in mind. Uh, One of those purposes was to explain to them his situation. Another was to thank them for their generous gift. Another was to explain why he had sent back Epaphroditus instead of sending Timothy, as they had requested. And another was to sort out some of the problems about which he learned, probably through Epaphroditus's visit. Uh, Then in verse 1, we noted that the letter was uh, ostensibly from Paul and Timothy, although uh, it's written in first-person singular, so Paul was the singular author, but there was a wonderful relationship between the Philippians and Timothy, so he was included in this greeting. Uh, we saw that they called themselves, what do they call themselves? Servants, instead of what Paul usually called himself was apostle. And that was, we saw, for two reasons. One was because of the wonderful relationship. He didn't need to, need to pull out his credentials with the Philippians. And he was preparing the way for a main theme of this letter. That is the servanthood, humbling ourselves, even as Christ humbled himself to serve others. He called them saints, which we discovered is another theme of the letter. And that is uh, sanctity, sanctification, being set apart by God as his people, and then growing in sanctity, growing in holiness, the two aspects of sanctification. We saw that he identified that they were in two different locations. They were eternally in Christ and temporally in Philippi, another theme of the letter. Wherever we might be, we are citizens of heaven and live out our identity in Christ. And that's as far as we got. And now we come to, let's go back to... Verses 1 and 2, the greeting. And Paul is the master of subordinate clauses. And one thing when you study Paul is if you can strip out temporarily those subordinate clauses and show that they're subordinate, you can get to the main thing. And so we saw that in the greeting, it's Paul and Timothy, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, grace to you and peace. And so we got through almost all of verse 1. We got through the first three lines, but we didn't get to this line here about the overseers and deacons. And so he wants to discover who the overseers and deacons. It's to all the saints, but he adds to the overseers and deacons. So let's try to figure out who these are. 
overseers are also translated, for example, in the King James Version, with which all of you grew up, and also in, in my childhood, the King James Version was the version, the authorized version, the, uh, the bishops and the deacons. So overseers is sometimes translated as bishops. So there were two uh, offices in the church in Philippi, the overseers or bishops and the deacons. Now, the word for bishops or overseers is this word. Episcopoi, in the plural. Episcopoi. Have you ever heard a word similar to that? Episcopal, exactly. What is an Episcopal church? An Episcopal church is a church that has bishops, exactly. And so the Anglican church, the Church of England, the Roman Catholic church, the, uh, the Orthodox churches, they are all in this sense, what are they? They are Episcopal churches because they have bishops. Methodist churches also have bishops. So any church that has bishops is a, an Episcopal church. Now, the, um, whoa, okay, the, this is a hair trigger here. The, um, what we find in Scripture, uh, the word here is not used, the word for elder, which is the word, Presbyteroi. You ever heard a word like that? Presbyterian or presbyter. What we find is that these two words, episcopoi and presbyteroi, are used interchangeably in Scripture. And let's go to a couple of places where we can see that. Let's go to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. And here Paul is passing through the area. And he calls for the elders of Ephesus. He brings them out and he wants to greet them. And he wants to give them a charge because he says he's not going to see them again. And then in verse 17 of chapter 20, he says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So whom did he call? The elders. He called the presbyteroi. Okay, And then he gives, I'm not going to read his whole discourse to the presbyteroi, but uh, as we read along, he says in verse 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So he says to the presbyteroi, he says, God has made you Overseers, God has made you episcopoi. And so here he's using these words uh, referring to the same group of men. He's speaking to the elders and he says, you are episcopoi. But not only that, uh, in this translation it says to care for the church. And that is the verbal form of the noun that we use for pastor or shepherd. And so here we have bishops, uh, presbyters or elders doing the pastoring. And so we find that in the New Testament church, the elders, the pastors, the bishops, they were all one office. Now, this, um, this changed in the history of the church. That changed in the history of the church actually fairly early on. Um, Ignatius was a man who lived in the, uh, at the end of the first century and into the second century, and he wrote a letter to the Magnesians the letter to the Magnesians, and in that letter, so this is fairly early on, this is less than a hundred years after the beginning of the church, uh, he wrote and he mentioned the episcopoi as a separate and superior office 
to the presbyteroi. And so that was the first time that the elders and the overseers, it was distinct between two different offices, but we find that that wasn't the case in the beginning. There's one other, there's one other place, Titus 1.5, where we find the two words referring to the same office. Titus 1.5, Paul says... This is why I left you in Crete. He's writing to his, his, uh, his friend and understudy Titus. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Then he gives the qualifications. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of, uh, of one wife, his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach, etc. So he's saying... Appoint elders because overseers must be like this. What's he saying? He's using these words about the same office. Why two words? Well, elder, what does the word elder connote? Age, maturity, wisdom, senior, right. Now, overseer, what does that communicate? I'm sorry? Okay, the boss, okay. It, it represents a job to do, right? So one of the words refers to how the person is, and the other job, or the other word refers to the job that he does, that he, he oversees the work of the church. And what is that work? Well, the verb that was used in Acts, that work is to care for. So there is authority, but it's also mostly has to do with caring for, pastoring the church. Okay, so back to Philippians. We find that in the greeting, he greets all the saints, and he greets especially the overseers and the deacons. Now, the deacons, the deacons, diakonoi, and actually our word deacon is not an English word. It's simply taking English uh, Roman letters and putting them into, instead of the Greek letters, so diakonoi and deacon, uh, but it's a general word that became used for the office. The general word simply means servants. Servants. And it's used in various contexts, servants. But here it's used in a very specific context and it refers to the, uh, these officers. Now, the elders, the elders were, uh, they appeared in the book of Acts, uh, and they were inherited from the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel had elders, the people of God in the Old Testament had elders, the people of God in the New Testament continued having elders. The deacons seemed like a, uh, an office that had to be invented and made up in the New Testament because of a certain crisis that took place early on in the work of the church. And we find that in Acts chapter 6. Now, the word deacon is not used, but the verbal form to serve is used in Acts chapter 6. And so it looks like most people conclude that this was an office that was was invented because of the need of the moment. And what was that need of the moment? Widows. Widows who were not getting along. And what was happening is there were two types of widows. There were uh, Hellenistic widows and there were Judaistic or Hebraistic widows. There were, were those that were very Hebraic or, or uh, Jewish in their, in their culture, and there were those who were more Hellenized or Greek in their culture, and some of them thought they were being overlooked. And it's interesting, they were being overlooked in what? They were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. In the ancient world, to be a widow was almost synonymous with what? Poverty. 
poverty. And so what did the church do for its widows? Took care of them how often? Every day. But you can imagine how difficult that would be. Uh, What a logistical challenge that would be, especially when uh, a preacher stands up like Peter did, and he preaches the first sermon, and 3,000 get converted. That's church growth, but that's hard to handle, isn't it? And how many of those were widows? We don't know. So uh, amazing growth of the church. Widows coming in, they have needs, and the church immediately responding with great generosity. But the elders and the, um, the, the apostles could have dealt with that problem. They could have said, okay, we'll take care of it. We don't want there to be anybody overlooked. But they said that would not be right. That would not be right because we are called to the ministry of the Word. We are called to the ministry of prayer. And so they said, you all, choose men. Choose men who are capable of serving in this way, who are good administrators, who are wise, who have integrity, who can handle the, the finances of the church. And do that for the good of all. And so they put forth uh, these seven men and they set these men apart as the first, we call them deacons, because we think this is where they came from in the history of the church. Okay, that's verse 1. Ready for verse 2? Yes! Okay, let's see about verse 2. Still in the greeting. Let's go back to the greeting and take a look at it. And what Paul says in the greeting, grace to you and peace. Grace and peace. Let's look at these words, grace and peace. Roman letters began with greetings. There were no envelopes, so they began really with the name of the person sending it. We get to look at the outside of the envelope and see where the junk mail comes from, right? And um, they had just looked at the first line and it said who wrote it. But then it generally said greetings, which was this Greek word, uh, begins with a chi, looks like the X, but here the, with the Roman letters, karen, or karen, okay? Um, Paul changed this to charis, which is grace. Now, whether he was doing this intentionally to substitute the Roman custom for a new Christian custom. We can't be sure, but it sure looks like it because he picked a word that's very important for Christians, but it also happily sounds very much like the first two letters or first three letters are the same letters as the Roman greeting. And so uh, this word charis is a very important word in the New Testament and it's the distinctively Christian blessing. What is grace? What is charis? Well, there are different definitions of it, but if we go to Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, we have one of the best definitions of charis. And that is God's favor towards sinners. God's favor towards sinners. In Ephesians chapter 2, it talks about our desperate, desperate condition before God. And it says that we are not just sick. It's worse than that. It says that we are dead. And that's how he begins this chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. 
Then he describes it following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working, the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Sounds pretty bleak, doesn't it? Dead under God's wrath. And then he says, But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions or trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then he inserts, by grace you have been saved. So in this context, as he talks about grace, what is grace? It's God's love. It's God's favor towards whom? Towards sinners. Towards sinners. And then he goes on to say, Once again, he picks up that same expression in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. So here he's emphasizing that grace is gratis. Uh, It's a word that we've taken over from Latin. It is free. It is a gift. It's not a payment. It's not a result of works. And to whom is this given? It's given to sinners who believe in Jesus Christ. And so, understandably, Paul could could greet the church and greet us with this summary of God's posture towards all who believe in Jesus Christ. His grace. His favor. Now, the second part is... Paul also used the Jewish blessing. How do Jews greet themselves to this day? Greet each other? Shalom. And so here we have in this greeting, we have the best of the Old Testament, which is peace or well-being, and we have the best of the New Testament. Pretty clever, isn't it? In one greeting, we have the best of everything in the Scriptures. We have God's peace, God's shalom, well-being, and we have His grace given to us. Now, going back to the text again, what is the source of this grace and peace? If you say, that sounds good, I want that, I need that, I'm a sinner, I want God's favor, where do I find His favor? How do I apply for it? Where, from where might I receive it? Or, I, I want God's peace on me, I want, I want God's shalom, I want His well-being, from where do these things come? And Paul tells us, that they come from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is a remarkable thing that he does here. He puts God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ as the joint source of grace and peace. If you want grace and peace, you must get grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, these are these two are the joint source of that grace and peace. Now, it is not likely, it is not likely that Paul was trying to make a point here that the Father and the Son are equal. He probably did not have that that didactic purpose, that polemic purpose. He was not making an argument here. It's something even more powerful than that. He was assuming it. He was not stating it. He was simply assuming by joining them together at the same level in this blessing, he is saying that as Christians, this is what we believe. So already at this early stage, there was a recognition 
that God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ are on the same level as the joint source of all good things. In other words, he seemed to be assuming the deity of Christ more than teaching it. Now he teaches it elsewhere. It is taught clearly in Scripture, but here he's taking it for granted. And this essential unity and equality of God the Father and the Son prepares the way for the most shocking teaching of this letter and of the New Testament and of the Bible. And that is that God Himself humbled Himself, became a servant, was made one of us, and showed His grace to us by giving Himself for us and rising again from the dead. He gets to that in chapter 2. But all of this, as I said last week, in all of this He's telegraphing His, his, his coming punches. In all of this, He's giving us previews of coming attractions. And so these first two verses are full of little nuggets of uh, preparation for what is coming afterwards. Now, what we have in the introductory part of the letter, we have the greeting, and that's what we covered so far. And then we have verses 3 to 8, we have thanksgiving. And then verses 9 to 11, we have a prayer. And this is typical of Paul's letters. And in all of Paul's letters, there is this thanksgiving, uh, except for, except for one which was a personal letter. And in his writing to the churches, there is only one exception. There's only one church for which he doesn't start by giving thanks. Do you know which one that is? Galatians. Now why? There were other churches that seemed to be messier, like the Corinthians. If there's any church for which it would be difficult to give thanks, it would be the Corinthians. It was a mess. There were factions and there was shocking immorality and there were, there were excesses in the service and all sorts of things, drunkenness and getting drunk on the Lord's Supper and all sorts of scandalous behavior and Paul gives thanks for them. But he didn't give thanks for the Galatians. In fact, he greeted them and then he entered into a rebuke and he says, Who has bewitched you? Because what had happened in Galatia? The Gospel was at play. The Corinthians were still holding to a belief in the Gospel in spite of all their behavior, but in in Galatia, they were in danger of giving up the Gospel itself and a church becoming a non-church and being separated from the grace of Christ. And so he, he jumped right in. That's for another series. Galatas, or in English, sorry, sometimes I connect in Spanish. Galatians, Galatians. Okay, now let's look at Paul's greeting. Once again, we have, we have separated out all his subordinate clauses. What is the greeting? I thank my God because of your partnership in the gospel. That's what he's doing. That's his thanksgiving. Now let's fill in with the subordinate clauses. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. So every time he thinks of them, he thanks his God. Always, at all times, in every prayer of mine. So every time he prays, and for you all. Now, this almost, this almost 
does what the Greek does. And it would be easy to do it. In, in the Greek, it, these are variations of one word. And the word is all. And so, uh, this is uh, pasi, um, pantote, pasi, and pantone. And here, if we would just change this to what? In all my prayers, then we would have it in English. Because all and always are relative words, or they're, they're related to each other. Okay? So, um, here, he's using some alliteration with the word, with the letter P. Uh, here it would be assonance with the letter A. Uh, and he's, his, his, his thanksgiving is overwhelming. His thanksgiving is extensive. This, this repetition emphasizes that. For, uh, in all my prayers, always in all my prayers, for all of you. And then he adds, making my prayer with joy. Making my prayer with joy. And once again, he's not throwing away any words. Because this will be a major theme of this letter. This is the first time in the letter he mentions joy. And let's think about the situation. The situation was this. They were concerned about Paul. Where was Paul? In prison. And they're thinking, oh my, we know something about Roman prisons. Paul's not from there. No relatives. He won't have friends. Who's going to take care of him? We're going to send money. We're going to send Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus gets sick on the way. He's delayed. Will he ever get there? Epaphroditus finally get there. Poor Paul. They're so concerned about Paul. And Paul says, I'm joyful. I'm joyful in my circumstances. And another thing, the problems in the church in Philippi, They were sapping their joy. Because as we'll see later, there were some divisions in the church. I'm not going to ask you to name any names of churches, but has anybody here ever been in a church where there have been divisions? (laughs) What did that do to the joy level of that church? It sapped it. And that's what was happening in Philippi. And so Paul starts out this greeting, or this thanksgiving, by saying... Don't worry about me. I'm joyful. By the way, what about you all? So he's preparing the way for a major thing. And the reason for the thanksgiving, principally because of their partnership in the gospel. We saw that last week. Sending money several times, four times at least that we know about, probably more. Now, he um, then adds the clause because of your partnership in the Gospel from the first day until now. We saw that last week, right? They sent money. Remember, uh, Paul and uh, uh, Silas were imprisoned in Philippi, and then they had to leave after about a week. And then they went to Thessalonica. And what did the Philippians do? Sent money. So the first opportunity they could, they sent money. So that's like Paul... You know, preaching in, I don't know, Fort Lauderdale, getting driven out, going to West Palm Beach, and immediately, a week later, after just becoming Christians, we, we get together and we send money up to Paul in West Palm Beach. Amazing! From the, the first day until now. What did Paul just receive from Epaphroditus? Another gift. And so he wasn't exaggerating here, and there was no other church that did it like the Philippians. Maybe Thessalonica. Maybe some of the Macedonian churches. But that region was amazing. 
Um, verse 6. I'll read it, but we're going to come back to this. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. I'll come back to that one, because that's um, somewhat parenthetical, and it comes out of everything. He says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all. It's right for me to feel this way about you all. Now, this word feel um, is perhaps not the... It's not a bad translation, but the word is a word that appears eight times in the book and the letter to the Philippians. And it's the word phreneo, and it's the word to think. To think. It's often translated to think. Now, you'll see why they translate it feel here. And it's not a bad translation. The context probably pushes us that way. Um, But this is an important theme that Paul, once again, he's preparing the way for coming attractions. Because he wants them to, to develop Christian thinking. Thinking. And he starts out by saying, it's right for me to think. So I'm thinking rightly about you. And guess what I want you to do? I want you to think rightly as well. So once again, he's preparing the way. And why is it right for him to feel or think that way about you? Because I hold you in my heart, for you all are partakers of me with grace. And he says, um, you're partakers of grace with me, which is pretty redundant of what we just saw of no one is participating, or you participated from the first day until now. So... Uh, hold you in my heart. It's right for me to think this way about you. I hold you in my heart. And that's why we translate feel, because we usually associate, at least in our Western world, heart with what? Feel and mind with think. But he's talking about, I hold you in my insides, and it's right for me to think about you this way. Okay. Um, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So here he's, he's cascading. Right for me to think this way because I hold you in my car. You're partakers of grace with me when in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Then he says, ends the thanksgiving. God is my witness how I yearn for you all, yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, this with the affection of Christ Jesus is... um, is saying with the, the inner affection of Christ Jesus. So what he's basically saying is, I love you like Jesus loves you. Which is a pretty amazing statement, isn't it? I yearn for you, I long for you with the same affection that Jesus has for you. Pretty remarkable. Now, let's go back to verse 6. Of this whole section, if anybody kind of has a, a verse that they've memorized out of this section, it was probably verse 6. And this is a verse that sometimes we pull out in order to encourage each other, and rightly so. But oftentimes we pull it out of its context and apply it, perhaps where it should not be applied. Uh, Why can Paul be so sure that he who began a good work in the Philippians will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus? Because he had seen evidence of God's work for 10 years in the lives of the Philippians. So this was not a, a shallow statement. Um, they just walked down the aisle yesterday, and now Paul's giving them assurance and saying, I'm certain that the work that God began in you, well, he will complete it. He's saying, I have seen. I have seen the depth and the solidity of the work of God in you over 10 years. And so I am certain, I am convinced 
that God will continue this work. And so to whom does this verse apply? It applies to all true believers in Jesus Christ, certainly. Um, But uh, we perhaps ought not to pronounce it upon any who have not shown the kind of fruit in their lives that the Philippians have shown. How can we say, I'm certain that God's working in you? Jesus said it. You will know them by their fruits. And he's saying, the fruit in you is abundant. I see it everywhere and always. And so I know God's worked in you. I know that God will continue to work in you. Now, um, we've talked about sanctification. Who does sanctification? Right. God does. Um, And we do. It's kind of a trick question. Sanctification is God's work. It's the work of God. But we are not passive in that work. There are some aspects of salvation in which we are completely passive. Regeneration is when God gives us a new heart. Did we have anything to do with that? No. Um, Adoption is when God calls us His own. Did we do anything in that process? No. Sanctification is growing in holiness throughout our entire lives. Is there any participation on our part in that? Yes. It is the work of God. And which aspect does does Paul emphasize here? He emphasizes that it is a work of God. But he did that right um, before he prays for them. And we're going to see how he prays for them. He says, this is God's work. But I'm going to pray for you some things. Okay? So, what do we have? We have the greeting and we have the thanksgiving. We all together? Okay? Ready for the prayer? And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. If you want an expression that describes sanctification, it would be more and more. Uh, When we apply that to adoption, there's no more and more about it. If you're an adopted son or daughter of God, there's no more and more about it. You have it all. Justification, another doctrine about which we'll be talking uh, in chapter 3 particularly. There's no more and more about it. You're either accepted by God as righteous in His sight, or you are not. There's no, there's no degree about it. But when it's sanctification, what is it? It's more and more. Now let's strip out a bunch of subordinate clauses in the middle here. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more to the glory and praise of God. That flows nicely, doesn't it? It makes sense that you may grow more and more in your love to the glory and praise of God. Now let's see how he fills all that out. By the way, didn't he just say, I give thanks for you in all my prayers, always, all the time, or no, he says, in every remembrance, always, in all my prayers, for all of you. You all are amazing. And then he says, but you haven't arrived yet. And so I'm going to keep praying for you. And I'm going to pray more and more for you. And that's one of the great themes of this letter. You're doing great. The work of God is so amazing in you. I see it and I've seen it for ten years. Keep going. Keep going because you're not there yet. And then Paul will later say, and I'm not there yet either. 
And so this letter is to say, let's keep going. Let's keep going more and more. I pray that God would... This most loving of churches. He says, I pray that you, the most loving of churches, would grow more and more in love to the glory and praise of God. Subordinate clause. With knowledge and all discernment. Once again, he's mixing things that we in the West have separated. Mind and body. Right? Uh, Heart and mind. We separate these things in the categories. Here he says that your love may abound with knowledge and discernment. But think about it. We can't love well without knowledge and discernment. Do you know that the Scripture says that we're supposed to love God? Right? How do we do that? How do we know how to love God? We told us in His Word. And if we don't know what His Word says, we won't be able to love God. If we don't have knowledge, we won't be able to love God appropriately. We're supposed to love our spouses. Anybody ever heard that? Yeah. If we don't know what we're supposed to do as husband or wife, according to the Word, and if we don't know our spouse, we won't be able to love effectively. So really, these are not separate categories. They, they must go together. We must have knowledge and discernment in order to love more and more. Wow. So that... And here are the two purpose clauses. So that, there are two of these, so that you may approve what is excellent. Now, this approve what is excellent, it's, it's literally approve what differs. Now, think about discernment. Somebody might have knowledge, but they don't have a lot of common sense. They don't have discernment. And so they don't make excellent choices. And he's saying, I want you to make excellent choices. I want you to be able to distinguish between things that are, that are different so that you can choose what is excellent. And here's another so. So there are two purposes here. So that and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And Paul will mention the day of Christ more than once in this letter. So we're looking towards the end here. So that you may approve what is excellent now. So that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ when that comes, the last day. And finally, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Have we heard something like this already? We've heard that grace and peace come from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we learn that the fruit of righteousness, from where does it come? It comes from Jesus Christ. And it also comes from the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And this fruit comes from Jesus Christ. And now we can understand how this flows. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more to the glory and praise of God. Why to the glory and praise of God? Why not to the glory and praise of those most loving Philippians who keep growing in love more and more? Why, why isn't to their applause and to their, to, their, uh, to their glory? Well, because at the end of the day, and literally at the end of the day, the last day, the last day here, um, from where did all this come? Where do we get it if we have it? Where do we get grace? Where do we get peace? Where do we get righteousness? Where do we get love? Where do we get this fruit? Well, it came to us if we have it through Jesus Christ. And therefore, the only one who receives the praise in that great final day is God Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.